Welcome back. This is Nature of Business, and I'm your host, Chrissy Coughlin. Thank you for joining us uh, this beautiful Thursday afternoon. We have with us now Tim Greiner. He is Pure Strategies co-founder and managing director. Tim specializes in building environmental and social integrity into products, brands, and businesses. And Tim consults with domestic and overseas manufacturers, socially responsible business, and environmental advocacy groups. Currently, he's working to build sustainability into corporate and brand strategy and sits on several sustainability consortium committees. Current and former clients include past guests such as uh, Seventh Generation, Timberland, Stony Field Farm, as well as the U.S. EPA, NRDC, Walmart, Millipore, and Dell, and the North Face. Welcome, Tim. How are you? I'm doing great, Chrissy. Excellent. Um, Well, I'm very happy to have you on the show. Uh, The local Boston group we've got here. Um, mm-hmm. So let's talk, let's start with uh, you. Um, you've been in this field for a while. Um, tell our listeners the evolution of Tim Greiner and how you end up at Pure Strategies starting the company. Sure. Um, well, I've, the company is celebrating its 15th year. So we've, as you said, in the sustainability world, we've been around for a little while. I my background is I'm an engineer and I used to work in the semiconductor industry and I I loved um, doing engineering work but um, when it was my first job out of college I decided you know there's got to be a little more to the world though and I ended up on a uh, volunteering to live overseas on a small island called Chook in the middle of the Pacific and I taught in high school there and that was a fascinating experience, um, this little tiny island in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and during that time and, and in subsequent travels, I was in Southeast Asia, and I was just amazed at the amount of pollution and environmental damage I saw. And I thought, I was trying to figure out what to do with my technical background, and I really thought about, um, I could you could see it was visceral, the impact of polluted like open sewers and just visible air pollution and the sickening feeling of being in some of these urban centers and I thought wow what a great way to use um, an engineering kind of materials focused background is, was to work on environmental problems so mm-hmm. that was back in 1988 and I uh, came back to the states and decided to try to make a career out of um, working in the environmental field great and so Pure Strategies, uh, tell us how long it's been It's been around. So uh, I founded the company in 1998. Okay. Um, I had, uh, had my own practice. I, I, I worked for a couple of years helping companies reduce their waste generation. That was kind of my return back to the States and started doing that um, when I worked for the Commonwealth of Mass and then went to graduate school. Um, at MIT, and um, when I graduated from MIT, I just started uh, doing consulting gigs on the side because when I was interviewing companies, they were telling me that there were no jobs to do what I wanted to do. Hmm. Okay. You know, I went to talk to several large management consultants, and they said if you want to work on in factories, you're going to work on efficiency improvements, but you won't really do any environmental work. So it was in in '98 that. Um, I f- Bob Kerr, my partner, and I founded the company. Mm-hmm. So, 
let's let's break this down um, in 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 terms of the past, present, and future of the sustainability mm-hmm. movement. Um, it's it's a fun way to frame this uh, because people who are learning about it um, can learn new you know n- new <laughs> information from what you're going to tell us. But it's also mm-hmm. fun to, to to learn just about the how much it's changed just in a very short time. So when we talk about past, present, future, we're not talking about, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. We're talking about, you know, 15 years ago. What, like, what was cutting edge 15 years ago? Right. So 15 years ago, um, we were, you know, in the U.S., we were just um, getting over Love Canal. Um, I think that, like, the the general person on the street was aware of hazardous waste. They're aware of how air pollution could be harmful, um, asthma cases, which is kind of getting on the rise. And, and we, it, the, the whole organic food movement was really nascent. There were very um, few companies marketing the health of their products. So at the time, the field and people in, in sustainability, it wasn't called that then, were, were really focused on, I would say, on the factories, so U.S.-based factories and these emissions of hazardous waste or toxic air pollutants, um, and and also visible pollution was like a, a really big issue. So we knew we had uh, pollution of our waterways. We could see it, um, you know, throughout the U.S. and a lot of riverways you couldn't swim in, you wouldn't want to swim in, and so. A huge focus was cleaning up factories, and that's where we started our work as Pure Strategies. It was really like this site-by-site focus on how do we prevent pollution, mm-hmm. because we knew that generating pollution, trying to clean it up after you generate it, was a losing cause. But if you could change the way you made the products so that you didn't pro- produce the pollution in the first place, it would cost less money because you don't have this expensive pollution control equipment. And it was less liability because so, you didn't have hazardous waste that you were responsible for forever. You're mm-hmm. perpetually responsible for the hazardous waste you, you generate under U.S. law. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to, to answer your question in a, in a soundbite, it was really all about the manufacturing, all about the manufacturing site and how do you reduce pollution from manufacturing sites. Okay. It just seems so crazy when when you talk about it that way that these these companies were were involved in processes that were so polluting, and yeah. you came in and said, "Okay, well, you actually can save money by not polluting." What, what was the? Why was it so illogical for these for these companies to to be going you know doing their business as as they did back then? Right. Well. It was kind of a subtle thing that happened in business because it used to be in the 60s and 70s and early 80s that you could pollute with with really very few consequences, right? So you could pollute the air, pollute the water, generate waste, and landfill it, and there were very few costs. And so, you know, Nixon, in, in, I think it was in 70, passed the Clean Air Act, and in 84, we passed the uh, a law around hazardous waste. and. And as these laws were passed and kind of and came, um, the regulations took effect. Businesses started to have to pay to get rid of their waste generation. Mm-hmm. Um, but what they did is they put all of those costs generally into overhead, hmm. and they, 
you know, at first they're like, you know, half a percent of sales, one percent of sales, you know, small numbers on a company's bottom line. But as those costs grew and those liabilities grew, um, companies started to, and we started to figure out, wow, we're spending a lot of money on pollution control. Mm-hmm. We're spending a lot of money on protecting our workers from lead as opposed to getting lead out of the product. Why are we using lead in, you know, lead-based paint? We don't need to. Why are we using lead in soldering? Right. Um, why are we using hazardous chemicals? Why are we generating pollution and paying all these, these costs and incurring long-term risk? Um, and so the costs were buried in overhead. And what we needed to do in, in, in employee training and protection and permitting fees and et cetera. And if we could find all those bits of costs and pull them out of these overhead cost categories and bring them forward and show production and manufacturing, the owners of the company that, wow, if you really take these costs and look at them for as they really are, you have an opportunity now to save money if you change the way you make your products. Right, right. So way back when, um, you know, 15 years ago, there were uh, what a lot of people have referred to as angel brands and some mm-hmm. that I mentioned um, in the intro here. Um, they're, they're basically companies that are led by CEOs that just have a different ethic. They're, they're committed to sustainability. Um, they're committed to responsibilities, safety, et cetera. Uh, how did this, how did this all come about? Did you, I know you got involved with a lot of them very early on. Um, how did you identify them? Were they, was it very obvious? Were they larger? Were they smaller, medium sized? They were, um, at the time when I started working with Stonefield Farm, they were, I think, $35 million in sales. So okay. They're clearly much larger than that today, and they're a subsidiary of uh, Dannon. Um, Seventh Generation was smaller than that even when I started working with them. And um, I I think I got really lucky. I, um, it, my first, um, I'm, I'm actually a Switzer fellow, so the um, Switzer f- fellows are folks that, through the Switzer Foundation, um, get... Um, are awarded a fellowship and grant money to do projects they really want to work on. And a little aside here, but um, Paul Switzer, who founded the Switzer Foundation, um, he's the person who invented Dayglow paints in his parents' kitchen sink, literally. Um, And he um, isolated the way to, like when we look at a traffic sign today and headlights are... At night, you can really see the stop sign or the yield sign. That's because of Dayglow Paints. And he, he had kind of walked around his father's pharmacy with a black light and found out that there were these certain things in the pharmacy that really glowed, and he was able to isolate what they were hmm. in the sink, <laughs> in the kitchen, Amazing. and then founded a company. Well, um, he had regulators come into his factory and were talking to him about uh, environmental issues, and he realized, wow, they know nothing about manufacturing. They don't know anything about chemicals. And so he, later in life, he founded the Switzer Foundation specifically to educate um, young people around environmental issues. And if anybody here is a co- uh, listening as a college student um, and is interested in learning more about the foundation, they should go and search for, look at switzer.org because it's a great yeah, institution absolutely. and they fund... Um, research and fellowships for for uh, graduate students. So I was lucky as a graduate student to get involved with Switzer. Um, now I'm forgetting about um, 
how I can tie this back to uh, oh so anyway it was through a Switzer grant uh-huh. that I started uh, that I approached Stonyfield Farm and, and uh, suggested working with them oh, cool. okay. and um, they were very excited to do that um, and that's that was my first I kind of broke the opportunity with Stonyfield Farm in, in 19 I think it was 98 okay and and somebody like Gary Hirschberg and, he just he just got it yes with Nancy Hirschberg and, 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 Gary. and Gary. And Gary, yeah. And they, they just kind of got it from the beginning. It was just sort of the way that they were living their lives, and there was no right. you know major alterations that they needed to do just because they were starting a company. Right. Gary founded the company because he said, look, I want I want to ha- have business be a force for good. Right. And how can I do that? Um, and he comes from a family of, of entrepreneurs, and he founded this business um, – making yogurt mm-hmm. um, and doing it in a way that conventional dairy companies weren't making yogurt. Do you see a commonality with these CEOs through all of your work, um, the ones that are, you know, the quote-unquote angel brands? What's the common thread there? That's a good question. Um, they're huge innovators. Mm-hmm. They're passionate. Um, and I think... Inside, they've got an underlying um, compass that's directing them. Mm-hmm. That's always pushing them further, and it, and that, and whether that's to be more transparent about the business, to push better social policies for employees, to communicate to consumers in a way that nobody else is communicating to. They're, they seem to be these serial optimists and um, serial activists in, in business clothing. Mm-hmm. And that's that's quite unusual. Um, and also because you know these companies were privately held, um, they didn't have to answer to um, a, a public board. They answered to a private board. Right. Um, but they could be a mission-driven organization and one that was also profitable and mm-hmm. making great money. Or you could reverse it. They were profitable businesses who also were really out um, around a social and environmental mission. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That- great. So now we're in the uh, the present, 2013, mm-hmm. and uh, sustainability is, uh, I think, even beyond a buzzword now. It's just, uh, it's it's something that's ingrained in a lot of companies. Uh, it's it's not a, there was just a report I saw that came out today, I think Cone Consulting put out about how CSR, corporate social responsibility, is an absolute must for companies. What 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 is cutting edge today in sustainability? Cutting edge today in sustainability is, uh, we, is I think companies have realized that no longer is the focus really your factory. That for many businesses, the biggest impacts associated with their their business operations is really either back in their supply chain, <clears throat> so it's in the sourcing of the raw materials and the ingredients and the the suppliers far back in the in the value chain, <clears throat> or it's actually in the customer use of the product and the disposal of the product. So that's that's where the impacts are. They're not they're less so at the actual site. So if we just take Bangladesh as an example and, and the textile industry, mm-hmm. the big social issues are not at the big brand headquarters. They're elsewhere in the value chain where um, you know, several tiers back of suppliers are making garments for them, and heretofore, they many of the big brands didn't know about who was making their products for them mm-hmm. um, because they were subcontracted through subcontracts. Well, now they need to know. 
they need to have some element of control over the social and environmental conditions. They need to be driving sustainability backward into those business relationships. Mm-hmm. And no longer can it be just a, a, a this kind of transactional relationship between the people in the company that, that buy and the supplier and the supply chain. Mm-hmm. There's other aspects of the business relationship, and it's so it is a requirement today. I think I think the other thing that's really changed is if if you've read Thomas Friedman's book about uh, where he talks about the world being flat, mm-hmm. it's a great analogy. What he means there is that we have instant communication, so anybody around the world can be looking at, tweeting about, emailing, blogging about your suppliers, your products, uh, and no longer does the the corporation hold the reins when it comes to communicating around what they're doing. Mm -hmm. There's there's a world watching and a world commenting. So cutting edge today is knowing about your supply chain. It's strategic to the business because you have the same cost-cutting opportunities we talked about earlier as regulation goes global. Mm -hmm. And you have um, business reputation, business risk issues, right? So sure. companies don't want to be associated with child labor, egregious pollution, et cetera. And then the leading companies, not only they don't want to be associated with it, they see it as an opportunity. Because as we move from 7 billion to 9 billion people in the world, which we'll do in the next 40 or 50 years, Amazing. and those 9 billion people want to live like you know, a typical... Um, North American, (laughs) we don't know how to do that. Because if they all live like we live and pollute like we do through our consumption and and lifestyle, we we just don't have the resources and the the planet won't be able to stand up to that level of affluence. So the companies that can figure out how to deliver the products and services that um, can help us to meet um, our environmental and social needs are going to be the winners. Mm-hmm. Who, are so, s- who are some yeah. of the leaders? Uh, who would you say? I mean, what we, Walmart comes to mind, um, but leaders who are requiring that their supply chain abide by a certain standard or provide for them information, et cetera. Who are those, some of the big leaders? There are leaders in, really in every sector. So if you look at um, in apparel, Nike is a real leader. They've... Mm-hmm. Um, clearly set really ambitious goals around social and environmental standards in their supply chain. They've actually are transparent about who their suppliers are. Mm-hmm. Um, and their company that's been working, this is not new to them ever since, uh, you know, years ago they were the poster child for not knowing and not taking responsibility for their supply chain. Well, that's, that's changed mightily at Nike mm-hmm. and they are, a real leader. Patagonia would be another leader in that apparel kind of uh, outdoor industry space. Mm-hmm. Are they in the electronics industry, mm-hmm. they're not perfect, but there's a number of leaders there. Dell is a leader. Hewlett Packard's a leader. Apple's a leader. Those companies, uh, you, those are U.S. companies. There are also other uh, Japanese and Euro- European leaders as well. Um, and uh, in retail, you know, Walmart is a leader. Um, for certain, they're really pushing their supply chain. They've got a lot of work to do, but they've done some really fantastic work. And when you're the, you know, biggest company in the world, and you tell your supply chain that you want them to adhere to a set of sustainability requirements, that 
mm-hmm. creates a lot of change yeah. globally. They don't want to lose the, the, the business, clearly. So no, they're, they're no, it's, uh, clearly they don't. Um, if we look at, you know, like uh, in the food industry, um, you have companies like Unilever, mm-hmm. um, which make, you know, the, um, all kinds of U.S. brands, um, but, you know, you, whether it's from shampoos to laundry detergents, et cetera, they're, they have a very, very aggressive set of global goals that their CEO has set forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, I would say some of these angel brands are still among the leaders like Seventh Generation or Stonyfield Farm. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are they able to take, are they able to take their, um, their, their best practices and their uh, internal knowledge and, and help other companies to achieve some level of yeah, accomplishment? Yeah. Yeah, if you look at uh, seventh generation is a great example. So they have as a goal is to um, uh, they, I don't know if I'll characterize this perfectly, but it's to have influ- influence beyond their size. Mm. They really they they in part want to change the world, and so when that's your goal, how do you go about doing that? So you can do that through educating consumers, right? That's a way, but. You can share your best practices both with your suppliers but also more broadly. You can advocate for progressive regulation, whether that's being part of a, a movement, a corporate movement called BICEP, which is organized by um, a Boston-based group called Ceres, where we're pushing for um, climate change legislation here in the U.S. Um, or um, 7th Gen, for example, for years has um, gone and testified at, at at the state level, when legislation comes up around the use of phosphates in products like uh, dishwashing detergent, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's a huge source of phosphate into rivers and streams, and it's one of the reasons why, in certain states, you have rivers and streams that don't have a lot of fish life and other aquatic life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's. It, it, there's no question in my mind that even the, these small companies can have huge influence beyond their size. This was also a, a practice that Stonyfield Farm employed for years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Still does. Yeah, they're they're another. They're just a great example, and they're they're local. Um, so that yeah. One, of our one thing that's really <laughs> interesting is when Dannon, um, that when when. Stonyfield was uh, acquired. It was a gradual process where Dannon increasingly um, uh, uh, kind of garnered ownership of the company. One of the objectives that Gary set for himself was, now I'm going to influence one of the largest dairy companies in the world. Mm-hmm. And he did that. And it was really interesting to see him bring organic products to Canada, to Brazil, to these markets where there really weren't many organic brands at all. And also, one of his objectives was to make the plant in London Dairy, New Hampshire, the Stonyfield plant, uh, one of the, if not the one of the most, and I think it, I don't know where they are now, but one of the most efficient um, plants in the whole Dannon family. And the objective there again was to prove that through sustainability, you can achieve these really awesome business objectives like profitability great quality, very low waste, and you can achieve these uh, sustainability goals as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, let's let's talk about uh, the, the future. Um, right. 
we've, we've, it's a pretty uncertain future that we all will, I guess the future by definition is uncertain, but um, the conditions we, we face today on the planet um, are pretty dire in, in, in some respects. Um, do you think that the bus- that businesses in general are, are they moving at a clip that is fast enough to meet all of the challenges that we're going to be facing? That's a great question. I, I think our conditions are so dire today, and it's so different. You know, it's not visible pollution. Visible pollution. You don't see, can't see carbon dioxide pollution in the air, right? Right. And we can sense climate change, but the climate change we're experiencing now is a time delay. It's from the emissions from 15 and 30 and 45 years ago. Mm-hmm. So by the time we see the impacts of the carbon emissions we're putting into the air today, it's not going to be for another 15 or 20 or 30 years. And um, the, you know, if you look at what climate scientists are telling us, the impacts are huge. And if we look at these non-visible sources of pollution like toxics, um, that we find in human tissue and in animal tissue. Um, we've got big problems. And companies are responding, but I, I, I think we have. We're, we're, honestly, we're going a little bit too slow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Actually, a lot too slow, lot if you ask slow. me. I think there's some interesting um, things that are hopeful about the future, and I'm really happy to see that CSR is a requirement, but um, I think we've we've really got to get going to be serious. I, I kind of consider us um, that we're adolescents right now. Mm-hmm. You know, we're hopeful. We've done a lot. We've learned a lot. We're out there in the big world, but we don't really, we're, we're not good enough yet. We, mm-hmm. we haven't cracked this. We're not on the downside of, you know, where we've we're kind of gotten a hold of climate change. and We've wrestled that. We've gotten a hold of chemical issues and biodiversity and water scarcity. We're well, we've really identified the problems, and we're starting to work on the solutions. Mm-hmm. So, what is the magic, magic sol- bullet or magic solution here? I mean, is it is it going to be, uh, you know, employees coming from the inside and demanding that their companies be greener? Is it going to be from hiring CEOs that uh, really get it? Is it just going to be for public sector just saying? You know, people like us just saying, you know, demanding that we're, we, our products that we buy are greener, et cetera. I don't know that there's any one magic bullet. I feel like we're, we have to be active on so many fronts. And, and whether it's the small things that um, a person does in their home for recycling or energy efficiency or something they do with their community or their school mm-hmm. or they do in their company, those are all really important and really helpful. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no question we need legislation in some areas, climate being among the priorities. Right. Um, I'm really encouraged by what I see from the youth right now, what, what Bill McGibbon and the folks at 350.org have done to organize student campus activists on climate change is really, really important. The divestment movement, which mirrors the apartheid in South Africa divestment movement of the, of the eighties mm-hmm. is, uh, is catching on in college campuses. And, mm-hmm. um, I feel very hopeful to see that level of engagement. We need large-scale social movements. Absolutely, I I could not agree more. So let's let's we have a few more minutes, and I'd love to I'd love to hear about uh, some of your current projects and clients. Couple maybe a couple snippets of what you're doing. 
Sure thing. So a um, few things that we're doing right now, we're working uh, – we're working with Walmart on their sustainability index, and that's proving to be quite interesting. So Walmart has this index where their goal is to essentially evaluate and, and measure the sustainability performance of products sold in their store. And that sounds like, oh, that might not be that hard, but it actually is really hard to come to agreement with um, a diverse set of stakeholders, industry, NGOs, academics, to say, well, what are the really big environmental issues associated with um, computers and laundry detergent and toys and breakfast cereals and frozen berries and, mm-hmm. and tomatoes and think of all the things sold in a, a re- retailer like Walmart. And then to evaluate the sustainability performance of the companies that are supplying Walmart. So that's a huge, huge area. Um, we're making great progress. Um, Walmart has um, set up uh, these, uh, what they call their index, with a, a, a good part of the business in the past um, 12 months, measuring the sustainability. And then the other thing that's really interesting is they're integrating that index into the relationships between the buyers and the suppliers. Okay. It's not just the sustainability office at Walmart talking to the sustainability office at Procter & Gamble or Unilever or some other supplier. Mm -hmm. It's the buyer. It's part of the business relationship. We want you to perform, um, not make the products at a uh, quality products at a good price. We also are asking, what are you doing about these sustainability requirements? And we're measuring your progress there. And we're we're communicating about that in the business relationship. Mm -hmm. That is really innovative. And, that's the kind of business-to-business conversation that takes sustainability out of the um, the niche role that it's often been in companies and makes it really much more important and strategic. Right, absolutely. So that's a that's an example of um, some of the work we're doing. We're we're also doing some exciting work with uh, Seventh Generation right now on their corporate goals. It's been really funny helping them to reestablish uh, a new set of goals for 2020 which are that's cool very far-reaching yep um and um and some other work we're doing is working very closely with uh radio flyer that little um company that makes the red wagon oh yeah uh-huh you know uh they make a, a phenomenal um product that Parents and children enjoy together, whether it's wagons or tricycles or scooters, mm-hmm. um, and they're building sustainability into their their products. And it's been fascinating to look at their suppliers and their manufacturing processes. And that's cool. And um, they're making real headway. And we're 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 looking forward to uh, Radio Flyer's first um, public communication about their progress. Um, it'll probably be next year. Okay. It's kind of interesting, though, because it does take a little while. It takes for a company to start and really build these processes into procurement and manufacturing and mm-hmm. um, supply chain. Mm-hmm. It's not an overnight thing. No, it's not. Wow, what a good conversation, Tim. Thank you so much for, for telling us um, more about your company and the terrific, awesome work you are doing on a daily basis and um, giving us that overview of past, present, future. I think it's a really great way of framing it and and educating people about the evolution of sustainability 
so corporate sustainability. So thank you very much. Thank you, Chrissy. I really enjoyed our conversation. Great. I'll talk to you soon. Nature of Business is brought to you by Small Dog Electronics. Small Dog Electronics is your local independent Apple specialist. Small Dog Electronics offers all things Apple with a commitment to customer service, Apple-authorized technical support, and business consulting solutions. Small Dog's Apple-certified technicians will support you before, during, and after the sale for Apple products both in and out of warranty. Check out their Apple-certified service and retail location at the Mall of New Hampshire in Manchester or at smalldog.com. That's Small Dog Electronics, always by your side. Nature of Business is also brought to you by the Energy Law Group at Downs Racklin Martin PLLC, a full-service law firm with six offices in northern New England. DRM's energy team provides the complete menu of legal services to assist commercial renewable energy clients with project development, financing, siting, and regulatory approvals. For more information, log on to drm.com, and we will be right back. <laughs> 